For years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery knowledge and responsible for mapping millions of visits to breweries all across the United States. In early 2021, BreweryDB revealed a whole new platform with all new features for craft lovers to plan their unique brewery experience. Find, filter, search, and route your way to breweries worldwide and in your own neighborhood. To take full advantage of the optimized power of BreweryDB and to increase your brew knowledge, visit BreweryDB.com, your digital destination for brewery experiences. Good Beer Matters shares the stories of craft and culture found in every glass, and I'm excited to announce that the Good Beer Matters podcast and BreweryDB are collaborating this year to help you get to the bottom of it. Visit us at BreweryDB.com and GoodBeerMatters.net to finally have the experience you've been missing. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. We consider there to be five basic senses, right? But there are actually more senses than that. Your smell information gets directly to the parts of your brain that do memory processing, that do emotional processing. But people who lose their sense of smell or lose their sense of taste suffer really, really deep quality of life issues. We all explore our world using sight, sound, touch, taste, and smell, whether we're conscious of it or not. We take for granted the ability to identify garlic simmering in marinara or chocolate chip cookies fresh out of the oven. But what is the full impact of taste and smell in our lives? And what if we lost them? My next guest studies the science and taste of smell and navigates us through these questions. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe. And one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 75 of Good Beer Matters with Dr. Courtney Wilson. guest I brought on because we're going to engage in a series on sensory and uh, but we can't talk about sensory without talking about the smells the tastes and the impact that it has on our lives and and uh, my next guest is going to help take us a little bit further into the weeds on this uh, Dr. Courtney Wilson thank you so much for being on the Good Beer Matters podcast today Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting to talk about what I love with people who love beer, which I also love beer. So, <laughs> and it, you know, there's a lot of love going around beer, sensory, and and, yeah, exactly. and, and all this stuff. Um, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is a topic that is uh, you know, and I'm sorry, I, I, to, especially to all of my uh, listeners, I, I'm starting to sound like a broken record. You know, every beer is like I've got a favorite beer, and there's 20 of them, um, if if not more. And this is a topic like many others I've been thinking about for a long time, um, and it's absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, but you know, this is where. It's like if if beer and good food and good experiences all kind of had a point or a purpose or like a, a you know a, a, instead of in the theoretical ether of oh isn't it so great mm-hmm. if this is for me this is where it it really connects with reality with our human experience and this is the question that I always ask and everything I do is so what for me for me this conversation that we're about to have answers that question so mm-hmm. what. Um, and so I, I'm particularly excited about this one. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a big, good, so what question. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you and I talked uh, ahead of time, and, and, and it sounds like we were thinking along the same line. So I, I really appreciate this. Um, um, but before we dive in, I, I want to get to know a little bit more about you. Uh, will you tell us about mm-hmm. your academic background uh, and the work you do and, and why you love beer? Yeah, sounds great. Um, well, I'll answer the beer question first because it's kind of funny. Up through probably my mid-20s, I was one of those people that didn't really drink beer, couldn't really get behind it. Um, I'm pretty sensitive to bitter things, so I think that was maybe my hurdle. Um, I used to drink ciders 
much more often. Um, as boring as they were in the States at that time, they're, they are much more varied and interesting in the UK, as I found in my travels. But um, we're getting there with spiders here as well. Um, but at the time, there was really just kind of woodchuck, which uh, I drank a woodchuck once and thought, this is way too sweet and switched to beer. So I've been which, a beer person ever since. Which, I'm sorry, I cannot help it, but how much woodchuck did you chuck? Ooh, like probably too much woodchuck, honestly. <laughs> but I, uh, I don't have a, a number for you actually. But that is a, <laughs> a great rhyme. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that was a fair question. Anyway, please continue with your background. Sorry to disrupt. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course. Um, so, in terms of my academics, I uh, studied a bunch of things in college. I did molecular biology and also threw some Spanish and art and history in there. So I was kind of um, all over the place. But I decided after college that I really wanted to go to grad school and study brains. So um, I joined a neuroscience graduate program at the University of Colorado out in Aurora. Um, and I started really wanting to do um, hearing. So I wanted to study how hearing worked and how humans did that. Um, and kind of accidentally fell into a lab that worked on taste instead. So figuring out how taste buds work. Uh, and really fell in love with it. And so now I'm a, you know, a, a gung-ho cheerleader for all of the chemosensory sciences. So that's taste and smell and also a bit of touch. Um, so yeah, and I, I current work is trying to figure out just how taste buds work in the mouth. But yeah. Well, it's funny. In, in, our pri in a prior conversation that you and I had, you mentioned that you were also a musician. So it made sense that you studied sound and hearing and everything. Um, and, and yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and I've done a little bit of that too, but uh, but to this day, I still use music analogies to tasting all the time. Do you find the analogies between the sense of sound and the sense of uh, taste and smell uh, are very parallel? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I use um, probably both from, because most of our language we use for sight and sound, right? So um, I think getting a handle on the chemosensory sciences it's if you think about it in a metaphorical sense it's kind of more globby and ill-defined in comparison to say vision or sound where you have this is exactly the note that's coming into your ear right now or this is exactly the eye um, what your eye is experiencing this is the exact color and the wavelength of light so um, chemosensory sciences aren't categorized quite like that because it's just detecting chemicals, right? And so it's kind of globular in comparison. Um, but yeah. Well, and that's perfect. I'm going to ask you to explain what you just said. Um, uh, so the next question mm -hmm. I have is, is can you in a, I'm, I'm, Sorry, I'm going to ask this anyway in a in a quick way. But can you give us a uh, a first class uh, of the semester, uh, uh, just a basic senses 101 overview of how taste and smell actually work? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is this is the nitty gritty of what um, I do day to day. So I. I appreciate that question and love getting into it, actually. So I don't mind your question at all. <laughs> um, so. Taste and smell are chemosensory sciences, right? So they are basically detecting chemicals. With your eyes, you are detecting photons of light. With your ears, you are detecting sound waves, so compressed um, waves in the air around you, essentially. Um, so it's a pressure. Uh, touch, you're also sensing pressure and some chemosensory um, components, as I mentioned before. But with taste and smell, you're really detecting chemicals. So when you are either eating something, you are breaking that uh, food up in your mouth and it's, you know, getting down into some of its component parts. And those component parts get dissolved into your saliva and then reach your taste buds. So you are able to detect if you're eating something with a lot of sugar, you are actually able to detect that sugar molecule based on its shape. Um, so you are detecting sugar molecules, you're detecting protein molecules, you're detecting acids, sour, um, and your nose works in a lot of the same way. So when you're smelling something, whether it be pizza or bread or garbage, you know, something less pleasant, little tiny particles of that um, object are actually becoming airborne and getting into your nose. So um, in your nasal cavity, you have uh, a lot of what we call epithelium. So it's the layer of cells that's on the outside, essentially. Uh, the outside of the inside of your nose, if that makes sense. Um, and so 
you have part of that epithelium is called your olfactory epithelium, which means your smelling epithelium. And that's where all of the neurons are that are busy doing smelling. So they have, you can think of it kind of like a lock and key system. I sort of alluded to it before with the sugar molecule. Um, But if you say are smelling a banana, molecules from that banana have a specific shape, right? So these neurons in your nose are actually expressing molecular components that work as locks to those shapes. Um, And so the, you know, little banana molecule will get inside this lock that is perfectly uh, evolved to receive that signal. And that will be the signal for the cell to say, oh, I'm smelling something here, tell the brain. Um, So that's how both Uh, smell and taste work on a very base level is kind of a lock and key system with a couple exceptions. But um, yeah, so that's your chemosensory senses are are detecting things based on their shape and then converting that signal into something the brain can use, an electrical signal, um, and communicating that to the brain where that information can get processed down the road. And so that makes me think of that... um... Uh, that little toy that uh, most of us had when we were, you know, one or two, where it was just this little globe, and, and you had to take those little uh, different shaped blocks, like the star could only fit in the star slot, and the square in the square slot, and the in the circle in the circle slot, and and it is that exactly that's yeah. kind of how our our flavor and our taste and our smell work, right? It just your brain is that is that little ball and it says, oh, star, oh, square, oh, oval. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even just, um, and so you can kind of think of it in the way as you're fitting a, that piece into the ball and this is just a slightly more sophisticated ball, right? Yes. Uh, and it converts that that shape signal, that, that fit between the shape and the hole uh, into an electrical signal because your brain, its language is electricity, basically, right? So electricity is what your brain cells use to communicate to each other. So every sensory system, whether it be a chemosensory system like taste or smell or a visual system, they're taking the outside um, environmental cue, chemicals or light or sound, and converting that into an electrical signal that your brain can use. So uh, do do all of you scientists um, have a sense <laughs> of of how many uh, taste and uh, aroma compounds that that we humans can detect? Oh, that is a great question. Um, so taste is a little bit uh, different just because the taste buds process fewer modalities, we call them, um, than your sense of smell does. Which is not to say that it's less complex. You're also detecting concentration and um, combinations and things like that. But your taste buds, so far, we are sure that you detect five things through your taste buds. And that's bitter, sweet, salty, umami, um, and sour. Uh, So they're essentially doing a, a smaller job than your nose, which is basically taking in any chemical that you're you're smelling and if it has a receptor that matches that chemical um the the population of cells that are activated because all things have more than one chemical in them right like a Mm -hmm. banana has a lot of different things not just one chemical um so it's taking all those chemicals and by the population of neurons that's activated by those chemicals Uh, it's saying, oh, this is an identifiable smell. And we think, because it's kind of like a combination lock, essentially. Um, A lot of lock references here. (laughs) Sorry about that. Uh, But since it is, you have, you know, a limited number of receptors, uh, those locks that receive the, the signal, but the combination of different activation patterns will give you a ton, ton of different smells. So we can probably... I, I think the estimates these days are up in the billions or trillions, some, some you know, really big number of what we think we are able to actually smell. And that's even bigger for other animals that depend more on, on their sense of smell than we do. Um, so dogs and rodents, for example, have um, much more of their brain dedicated to their olfactory system and smelling. And so we think that they're actually even you know, more advanced than us in this way. But humans don't give ourselves much credit for smelling um, well. 
Uh, and we do. We actually, there there was a fun experiment in, I think it was Stanford a while back, uh, where they actually had people put on this really funny helmet thing that prevented them from seeing or hearing things and they could just smell. And they were told to go find, I think it was a bar of chocolate in a field. And, uh, you know, they, you know, kind of smelled essentially like a dog and crossed the path and traced it and were able to successfully find chocolate in the field, which is pretty impressive. And though we don't challenge ourselves with things like that all the time, our noses are actually pretty sophisticated. Well, and that's interesting you say that too, because uh, like you and I talked about before, I, I had always heard or I read somewhere. Um, I never remember where I read the stuff. I just retain this ridiculous knowledge. But um, <laughs> but how, how back in the day, uh, in the uh, 1900s, that people thought, you know, sight and maybe even sound are worthy of studying, but taste and smell just were not, for to be kind, they were not a priority. And so our, <laughs> our, our approach to studying taste and smell is, is still pretty nascent, if, if I understand correctly. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, so that's, I'll, I'll take you even further back and go a little bit more insulting to taste and smell. <laughs> like the early Greek thinkers um, basically qualified that in qualifying the senses, they basically said, hey, so, you know, you make art with your visual system and you speak and, you know, create art and thought and whatever with your um, hearing system. Uh, so, those were sort of the noble senses and taste and smell and touch even were considered sort of animalistic and base and not worthy of um, study. And I think as a result, like traditionally in science, uh, it's taken a lot longer to get to the point where we're studying taste and smell at the same sort of level as people have been studying the visual system and the auditory system for a lot longer, the visual system especially. Um, so yeah, we're, we're still learning kind of basic things for example in taste we're still trying to figure out how salt tastes work so it's one of the five modalities that taste buds can perceive right but uh, we still don't know exactly which receptors or channels it uses to receive that signal we don't know exactly which cells are responsible for this it's something we're still trying to figure out so these are sort of basic things that we haven't been able to get a hold on quite yet just because we've been as sensory systems, um, taste and smell have been uh, neglected for other sensory systems. And and it's funny to just to think uh, if if we didn't know all this that you just said, one would think that you know wh- you know what is our mm-hmm. deal? I mean, we can land a rover on the on Mars, but we we don't know how our sense of smell works. But um, but it's also but it, right. but it also has to do with you know what have you prioritized? I mean, it it people have said that we know more about the stars than we do the seas, um, and so it's just like exactly what yeah. what what do you spend the time working at? And so I'm glad we have people like you working on smell and aroma, uh, smell and taste these days. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's it's funny because a lot of the sensory systems that people neglected in our scientific history turned out to be actually really that we don't think of them as consciously as we think of vision and hearing. Um, they are really, really basic to our quality of life. So the things that we neglect the most, I mean, we consider there to be five basic senses, right? But there are actually more senses than that. Um, just to throw out a couple, uh, there are, you have a sense of balance, right? So your vestibular system, your semicircular canals in your inner ear are busy figuring out your body's velocity in relation to the pull of gravity. And that allows you to balance yourself in the world. And though we don't think about that really often, when it's taken from you, that is a huge loss of quality of life. Um, and it's, you know, it's vertigo essentially. And anybody with vertigo will tell you that's really tough. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've sort of been discovering that all these senses we've been neglecting are really basic, not in terms of their animalisticness, which I actually don't think should be used as an insult, but uh, but they are basic to our quality of life in a way that we don't often think about. 
Yeah, it's interesting um, that you know my my mother has uh, developed vertigo uh, on occasion, and mm-hmm. and I can I can attest that she's not happy about it. Um, and in, yeah, no, it's really disorienting. <laughs> cool. And and you and I had also talked about proprioception. I never really thought of that as a sense, but yeah. but any athlete with good hand-eye coordination or a dancer who who uh, can fly up in the air and do spins and and all sorts of stuff and then still land on her feet, it's like without proprioception, everything is just gone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, proprioception just um, is the basic sense that you know where your body is. So just in the same way that you have sensory cells receiving light in your retina or sound in your cochlea, you also have cells that are hooked up to your muscles and they're sort of reporting back to where your muscles are. And that's, so your brain's job is, you know, send out signals to move this way. And then you, it's really good to, oops, sorry. Hey, moves. No, thank you. (laughs) Uh, So it's really good to have a system that's reporting back um, and saying that was a successful movement. This is where your body is. Um, And it's another one of those senses that when it's gone, it's really, really detrimental. There was, um, I remember a radio lab, sorry to reference a different podcast. No, no, I am a raging radio lab fan. Please do. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. Uh, So a really, really old episode and they were talking about proprioception as a sense. um, And they were talking to someone who lacks proprioception and without that report, reporting back, that innate reporting back of where your body is in space, you basically have to use a different sense to replace it. So this person, uh, when they were walking, they couldn't walk and talk or chew gum because they had to watch where their legs were at all times um, because they didn't have that innate reporting back system of this is where your body is in space. So. And, and yeah, so this, are, it's an incredibly important sense. Well, and, and this just helps land the plane on on how extremely sophisticated and how vital each of our senses are. Um, but, you know, yeah. I guess, again, for the, the sake of this podcast, especially our taste and, and our smell. Um, and, 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 and you kind of led us in a really wonderful way um, because the next question I had was, you know, I, I've always thought about uh, taste and aroma uh, uh, commun or just different forms of communication. Um, but they, uh, and I guess in my experience or my reading or my thought, it, they communicate obviously not in words, not in sound, but in, for me, they kind of conjure em- uh, images or memories or, 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 uh, kind of, uh, I don't know the right word, but I'm going to use emotions in- instead. Um, yeah. how, how does, taste and smell really communicate, uh, n- not just uh, uh, physiologically, but how does that, what does the brain do with all this information that is gathering in, in the end of it all? I've got a question for you. How are you engaging with your customers? Are you adding value or just vying for attention? If you have a business, then you are an authority and should be regarded as a partner in everyone's mutual success. But getting that message across in the first place, that's the trick. At Mountain Sea Media, I use education and storytelling to keep your brand on top of mind. So if you're done with ineffective marketing and want to create more impact, I want Mountain Sea Media to be your resource for high-value branded content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to explore the possibilities. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Right, right. That's a, a big and complicated question that I will sort of hopefully answer satisfactorily. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, these are your brain is your brain's job is to give you a holistic version of what's going on. So it's taking taste and smell and uh, even vision and hearing and um, touch, especially to make this sense of flavor that you're experiencing. So it it really makes the the um what's that the word the action of eating or drinking a really holistic experience but um taste and smell are kind of special uh smell especially attached to memory you mentioned smell and memory um so to get in sort of the nitty-gritty of brain anatomy for a moment uh, a lot of your brain cells that are doing this sort of high level cognitive thinking that you typically associate with brain activity they're in what's called your 
cortex, and that's on the outside of your brain. So all the wrinkles, essentially, that's your cortex. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where a lot of the higher, what we like to call higher level cognitive thinking goes on. Um, But at the center of your brain, there's a structure called the thalamus. And that actually functions as kind of the gatekeeper um, of sensory experiences and um, uh, signals getting to the cortex where it can be processed. Um, And basically all of your senses go through that gatekeeper except for smell. So whereas your thalamus can sort of tune down the amount of information that your cortex is getting, it does this especially in sleep when you're not, you know, getting the same sort of uh, sensory experience that you get when you're awake. um, And that's due in part to the thalamus sort of shutting that gate down. Smell bypasses that gate. It's the only sense to do so. Uh, And so your smell information gets directly to the parts of your brain that do memory processing, that do emotional processing without that gatekeeper in between. So um, you actually have there's a physical connection between smell and those parts of your brains that are um, doing really high level things like memory and emotion and attached to our quality of life. Sorry, I have some dogs that are making some noise over here. (laughs) Hey, puppies. No, thank you. Over there. Over there. And and so is that why, you know, when we walk in and you just are uh, essentially blown away by the smell of chocolate chip cookies and and, and immediately you go to, you know, grandma's house growing up or... or um, Absolutely. And, and of course, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of that movie Ratatouille. My daughter and I have been watching it for over a decade. But just that final scene where the the food critic tastes that that dish of ratatouille, and it shows that. Oh, image. I love that scene too. <laughs> that was that was just the. I thought that was the best movie, the best uh, way to explain how powerful the the sense of taste and smell are in a fun and an accessible way. But that scene uh, with uh, absolutely, it was just like that. That's exactly. That's exactly what happens mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, and it's exactly why there's this really um, tight tie between aroma in particular and dredging up memories. You know, you'll smell something and not even necessarily be able to identify or place it, but it will bring you back to a place immediately. And that's because your brain is so well-structured to attach those two things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I also love Ratatouille. It's a movie that my niece is very into right now. So <laughs> I've watched it quite a few times this year. Um, and it is a great sort of cheerleading movie for taste and smell and how important um, food consumption is not only as you know, a thing that we need to keep our bodies going, but also a really deep experience that attaches us to each other and to, you know, an excellent sort of joyful quality of life um, in a way that a lot of other senses just don't do quite as well. Yeah. Well, and of course, all of this information that you just shared with us can also be used in a in a bad way. And, and, um, and a good example of that is to this day, my wife will not drink Malibu rum because of that one night in college. Um, and, 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 and so that, that just created a, an, an aversion to it, but how can right. we, it's actually called, we have a term for it. It's called a uh, conditioned taste aversion. And we actually use it as a, um, a tactic in behavioral experiments to, uh, basically, ask whether an animal can detect something because mice, which uh, a lot of uh, scientists work with, um, don't answer you with, you know, English words as to this is what I'm tasting right now. This is what I'm smelling right now. So we need to rely on things that um, let us know whether or not they taste something. And we um, condition taste aversion is when you pair something a little bit unpleasant with a taste in that is not unpleasant. Um, and so if they start to avoid that taste and you know that they can detect it, so you can, you know, test different concentrations that they can detect and whatnot. Um, so it's actually a tool we used and there is a technical term and it's the exact same thing as when you've had, you know, that really rough night with Malibu and you can never have it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and no yeah. offense to Malibu. I, I still enjoy Malibu every once in a while. So anyone who's listening yeah, to this that, that works for Malibu, don't get pissed at me. It's, you know, it was just an example. Um, but how, but how can we you can replace it with anything? You know? Yeah, you can, yeah. Uh, you know, there's Jaeger, there's a bunch of other stuff. Um, um, Absolutely. But uh, but what what I'm particularly interested in on a professional standpoint is how we can 
use this superpower that we have and and basically deconstruct it so that we can take this beer and that food and this overall environment and put it back together to intentionally create those those good memorable memories how mm-hmm. how how does that work from from the the brain standpoint i mean we, you you kind of you shared with us the physiology and, 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 and all the scientific stuff, but how do we intentionally create these memories that are positive? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question because when we have, you know, made memories, there's no feedback or record of what exactly about those tastes and smells or whether it's the holistic experience or whether it's this one little chemical that will get that whole process going in your brain. No, thank you. Um, and so it's, it's a really complicated question to, to make that happen again. I, you know, you really just need to sort of recreate as many sensory experiences associated with that first um, experience as you can. And since we don't have someone recording all of our sensory experiences and saying, oh, this is what was involved there, that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, but I think it probably happens, happenstance a lot, you know, we... We live on a planet that has the uh, sort of finite amount of uh, sensory experiences, but it's the combination that really gets that. So maybe part of that sensory experience will bring back a more memory, if that makes sense. Um, and maybe not. It's a really hard. That's a really hard question to to get at, actually. Well, and it seems to me that the the best we can do is is to, you know, um, you know, to get you know, a bunch of people in the room. And so that uh, people like me can learn how to put all these elements together. Uh, the great beer, the great food, the great music, the great setting, um, facilitated yeah. great conversation, put all these pieces together and just hope that the magic shows up and creates that memory. But, but that, but that memory is not going to happen without those elements to come to it, at least in a, well. Right. Well, and you just, you probably just need, you know, a little, a little baseline because people create that on their own, right? They bring their own complex brains to the table. And so not knowing all the ins and outs of the brains that you're dealing with, um, you really can just create the environment where those memories can get made and get brought up again. Um, and I think that's just a dedication to, if you follow, you know, what makes you happy, it'll probably make someone else happy too. (laughs) Well, like chocolate chip cookies. I mean, that, that's a yeah, exactly. That, that's kind of a slam dunk most of the time. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, so we've talked about how how uh, physiologically how these things work, uh, how it gets in our brain, how mm-hmm. our brain uh, processes it, how we can try and put these things together. But uh, in a more philosophical and less scientific stance, but I'm sure you guys have talked mm-hmm. about this all the time on a Friday after drinking some Malibu. Um, what, <laughs> what is the what is the impact that that these senses that the particularly taste and smell have on the quality of our life of creating uh, a, no pun intended a sense of joy? I mean, how how do we get mm-hmm. from science to this ethereal experience? Yeah, it's it's a while because I'm, you know, studying these very basic processes of does this cell talk to that nerve? That's sort of the level of questioning that I'm doing. But you're right. It attaches to this really big concept of how do humans interact with food and drink and each other? Because as any I mean, most people will tell you um, it's not just food to fuel your body. You know, it's 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 not just drink to make sure that you're hydrated. Otherwise we wouldn't be drinking beer. Right. Um, well, I don't know unless we were, (laughs) (laughs) well, if it was just to hydrate, although there, there is, I'm sure you've gotten into this before, but the whole history of, you know, people drinking uh, low alcohol level beers just because it was safer than water because there were, you know, fewer microbes growing in it and that kind of thing. Um, fewer dangerous microbes, I should say. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like we have so many, when you go out on a date, you generally go out to dinner or you go out for a drink. It's, you know, so much of our lives are gathering together and enjoying the people that we love, um, with food that we care about. So it's this really base, um, 
kind of sacred thing, I think, in human existence. Uh, and we're just sort of, you know, working on the other end of that is really exciting, but we're kind of far from understanding all the neurological ways that that attaches to our um, deeper sense of the worth of food and drink and company. Yeah. Uh, so I'm. Did gonna, that sort of answer your question? Well, it, it kind of does. I mean, it, it's a hard question to answer, and especially it's uh, a really hard question to answer. Yeah, and it's probably like like taste. Everyone tastes things differently, and everyone has their own experience. Everyone has their own answers to these bigger kind of philosophical questions. Um, yeah. But uh, but coming from a, uh, a the the background of science, it, it was kind of a, mm-hmm. a in, in, an interesting take on it but um but i'm going to flip that question well, and one of the ways that we can I'm, I'm just sort of thinking again one of the ways that we um you can see the worth of what taste and smell does for our overall experience is when they go away right so uh people who are dysgusic uh they've lost a sense of taste and lost function of their taste buds or people who are anosmic um who are not able to use their smell systems have you know, depending on how they lost it, I, I'm going to exclude congenital anosmics, people who were born without the sense of taste or, sorry, the sense of smell, just because they never learned to depend on it in the way that people who are born with a functioning smell system do. Um, but people who lose their sense of smell or lose their sense of taste suffer really, really deep quality of life issues. So um, sense of taste in particular not only is it associated with joy in the people around you, but it's also very deeply tied to, you know, your ability to swallow your appetite. Um, So people who are genuinely discusic lose a ton of weight. They don't want to eat anymore. They, you know, it's, it's really tough for those folks. And as a lot of people are discovering, you know, with later onset anosmia, um, either by injury or, you know, in a timely sense by virus, uh, thanks, coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're losing a lot. Smell is just a huge part of your concept of flavor, and it's a huge part of your concept, of, like we've talked about, of your memory. And it's also, you know, really important in a, a safety sense. If you can't smell something burning in the kitchen, you're not, you are more at risk of, you know, dying in your house of fire, right? So um, your sense of smell and sense of taste are extremely, extremely important to your base. Um, level of joy and quality of life that if you lose it, it's really tough. So I think where we see those deficits, we can sort of see the worth of these senses. Yeah. And, and it was this question um, that thank you for answering that before I even asked it, because, you know, we both knew where this was going to go. Oh, I predicted it. That's yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It was um, it was this question. What happens if you lose your sense of smell and or taste mm-hmm. um, that really drove the question and in, in, in my desire to uh, reach out and, and and have you come on the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. uh, because, okay, we were talking about sound earlier and, and music earlier. Um, now that I know what Led Zeppelin sounds like, I can't imagine never hearing their music again. Um, now that I know what my right. children sound like, um, and the, the giggles of, the, of my toddlers and the, and the snarkiness of my now teens. And, and if, if I lost <laughs> my sense of hearing and never heard their voices again, you know, I, I could see them. I could, I could see that they're talking, but to never hear them or anything else have just that pure silence, you know, having that experience before, would be absolutely devastating. And I, and I think people would feel yeah. the same way about, you know, losing your sight and now you can't see color. And, and there's a lot of logistic, logistic, uh, logistic um, questions about this, but I'm not talking about logistics. I'm talking about joy and impact of life and to lose this, right. a sense of sound, lose your proprioception, use your, lose your balance, lose your taste, lose your smell. Those, those seem, um, as impactful and maybe arguably more so than, you know, losing a limb. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I remember having this, um, funny conversation with, uh, an ophthalmologist that I was, uh, going, I, I had an eye appointment and, um, the eye doctor, you know, realized I, we were talking about what I do and I study taste. And so he, he said, well, we only taste five things with, our taste buds. So you'd probably give that up before you gave up vision, right? <laughs> and, you know, classic 
he clearly had a bias and I also clearly have a bias, but, um, yeah, we tend to undervalue these senses, even though they are desperately, desperately important to our quality of life. And what you lose when you, I mean, all the things we were talking about of, you know, you smell something and instantly it takes you back to that memory that you had of something that you experienced that was important, you know, or you loved or someone you loved that's no longer here. Um, when you lose your sense of smell after learning to depend on it, that's a really, really uh, difficult transition to make. And it's it's heartbreaking, I think. And the same thing with, you know, anything that affects something so basic as your food intake, which we take joy in every day, you know, like I am. Oh, Mookie, shush. Uh, Mookie is my dog. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and so I drinking tea right now and if I couldn't smell my tea every morning that would be you know a big hole that I kind of take for granted right now but if I couldn't smell it I think that would be desperately difficult for me um so losing your sense of smell which a lot of people with COVID have gone through um is I I think a lot it is surprisingly detrimental to one's life um because we don't think of these things quite as consciously as we think of other sensory systems well, and I would throw this out there, too. Um, one of my favorite flavor and sound memories uh, that I formed uh, back in college is I'd sit out on a patio with a buddy and we'd play some jazz in the background and drink drink a beer. And, and he and I would start talking about stuff like this. Um, and and so mm-hmm. and I so I, I would throw out anyone listening. I'd throw out a little call to action. Ne- next time you have some friends over and you you want to you want to get a little philosophical, get something nice to drink, hopefully a barley wine because that'll open things up. Um, but uh, but have that conversation of if you had to give up one of your senses, which would it be? And and right off the bat, and I've had this conversation a few times before. Right off the bat, people say, oh, I've, you know, I'd, I'd never get rid of my sense of sight. I mean, how would you get around? Well, okay, get past that. Get deeper. Actually think about mm-hmm. what would happen if you couldn't hear anymore, if you couldn't see anymore, if you couldn't taste, if you couldn't smell, if you couldn't touch. Um, you know, really think about what your life would be like. And, and then understand that there are people who are going through life like this. Yeah, yeah. Another way to look at um, how important senses are, you know, we as a population have people that are born without sight, people that are born without a hearing system that are deaf. Um, And you look at the populations of people that experience this and a lot more people are born blind or deaf because and still have, you know, excellent qualities of life because they never learn to depend on these sensory systems like um those of us who are born with those functioning systems do. Uh, but the number of people that are genuinely congenitally anosmic, born without the sense of smell, hey, Mia, or congenitally um, dysgusic, born without a sense of taste, are much, much, much more rare in the population, which kind of hints at how uh, important these sensory systems are are to our basic functioning quality of life. Uh, and they're probably more important. I'm, you know, I like making visual art and musical art. So I'm a huge proponent of, obviously I love my sense of some, my sense of sight and my sense of, um, hearing, but I think probably the ones that are most important to our base quality of life and functioning are probably those ones that we don't think about as much smell, taste, touch, especially proprioception, balance, all those are maybe the most important to our, you know, basic functioning because they leave the biggest hole. Yeah, I I, I find that yeah. a fascinating topic to just consider. Um, but uh, as mm-hmm. you were, as you're saying that, I was reminded of um, uh, one of the books um, that I read from a past guest, um, uh, gastrophysics, uh, Dr. Charles Spence. Um, uh, and I'll, oh, I'll put fun. this I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, he is a um, gastrophysicist and and kind of studied the of uh, you know a lot of stuff like that are you familiar with his work i am not but that sounds really interesting i'm going to check it out (laughs) um i i will send you a link via email this is something that uh that um i'm not going to be nice about it this must be on your radar is fascinating um i'll ask you to indulge me Uh, i'll send you the uh the podcast we did but it's really really interesting from a standpoint of of how do you 
manipulate the senses um, from like a standpoint of like, um, you know, putting food on a white plate versus a blue plate, a, uh, a heavyweight fork versus a lightweight fork. I mean, all this stuff kind of adds to our perception of things going on. Um, uh, that is actually super, um, super interesting and is kind of validating. I've long had this. I'm going to reveal a weird thing about me. Um, I don't like to drink milk in a glass that is white <laughs> because they don't contrast enough. And this this idea is, you know, validating my longstanding uh, problem with milk in white glasses. Well, and I'll put this in the show so notes, but that. I'll send you an email specifically with this stuff because um, it, it has to be on your radar. Um, oh, but gosh, I lost where we were going to go with that. Um, oh, oh, uh, in, in that, in that book, he talks about, um, about, uh, someone who I don't know if it was a head injury or if he was born this way, but they discovered where like you, you have him eat a banana and he tastes roses. Um, if you give him, um, uh, you know, mm. a, a carrot, then it tastes like popcorn or something like that. Um, if you're aware of it, what is that called? And, and how does that mm -hmm. work? Because, I mean, that's we're talking um, about people actually, who lost their smell, but this is where something is just right. where the wires are crossed in a big way. Right. So essentially, I mean, you're kind of alluding to what is probably the problem there. Um, I, I will say I'm not an expert in this, uh, but essentially after an injury like that, you know, your your sense of smell is really, really susceptible Um to injury, those are actual neurons from your brain that are, you know, as close to the outside world as any neurons get. Uh, and so they actually get injured all the time and they are one of the only neural populations that renews over time. So there's, you know, the myth that you're born with all the brain cells that you will ever have. That is a myth. You make new brain cells. They don't get into all the parts of your brains, but one of uh, the parts of your brains that renews all the time because it is at that, you know, frontier of injury is your, are your olfactory neurons or your smell neurons. Uh, and but I, is something that I've wondered about often, but don't know all that much about is how those new neurons get rewired up in the right way. So what is probably happening to someone who, you know, loses their sense of smell and it comes back, but it comes back different is a wiring problem kind of higher up in the brain, right? Um, so getting all those peripheral systems, the, the neurons, the taste buds, to wire up to the correct sensations is something that I don't think we understand that well. Um, and so, you know, that's how you can get after an injury something, a banana will smell like a rose because it's just not wired up to the correct um, preconceived perceptions in your brain. Uh, and we don't really know how that happens or how to fix it. And I'm not sure that if it has a word, someone uh, more expert than me might know that. But um, it, it is a huge and kind of really interesting problem. Yeah. And from what I understand, it's very rare. But um, in this particular right. example, it was uh, just uh, some some worker in London that somehow they uh, or somewhere in England that they just discovered and it turned into basically a test subject because no one had ever really experienced this before. But it was, it was it, it's interesting to see how complex, how um, just to dive into the world of sensory and and um, and and you know past life working in the medical field. You know, I've we learned that you know if people have head injuries, where where your uh, mm -hmm. where those uh, uh, nerve cells for your uh, sense of smell attached, they can actually be sheared off. And, and I, I thought they would never grow back, but you're saying that they can grow back. They can. So there, there are a couple places in your brain, in the adult brain that continue making neurons, uh, into adulthood, uh, which a lot of people don't think about or, um, conceive of. It's not widely known. I don't think, um, but some of those neurons go to resupply uh, your olfactory neuronal system because, again, those are you know neurons that are on the outside, essentially, of your brain. Hmm. So they are much more – your brain is protected by this full skull case and everything. And those neurons, their bodies are actually going outside of the skull and getting to, you know, the – mucousy area of your nose that is much more prone to injury than inside the skull. And so they kind of need that regeneration that happens there. How, how long does that take approximately? That's a good question.
question that I totally don't know the answer to. <laughs> well, you and you totally could have just made it up, but I appreciate you being honest. Um, <laughs> oh no, no, I'll, I'll, if I don't know, I'll say I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, Rule number one of science. Yes, yes. <laughs> own, own up that you don't know everything. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, that's the exciting part, right? Like we don't know a lot of stuff, and that's kind of why. It's in part why I've fallen in love with the chemosensory sciences because we don't know as much about them as other sensory systems, and that's exciting. That means we can figure it out, you know. So. Well, and I don't have a PhD, but I I am one of those people where I I I love to learn, and I'm insatiable about it. Um, I have uh-huh. a diversity of experiences, and it's probably because my my most probably my most powerful sense is probably that of curiosity, and I just I mm-hmm. I want to know more. Um, you know, I'm I don't, right I don't, there with you. Right? It's just, <laughs> yeah. it, there's so much in this world that is just, uh, everything is fascinating to me. So I want to know more about it. Um, but uh, with all of the stuff that we've, we've been talking about, though, is how taste and smell work and how it impacts you and what happens if you lose it. Um, for those of us who still have a sense of taste and smell, um, uh, mm-hmm. How can we improve it? What if what if we want to? Hey, you know what? I, I have the superpower. Not everyone does uh, to taste and smell things. I want to do better at it. How how can we taste and smell things better? And what does better even mean? <laughs> that's that's a really good question. Um, so I mean, better is subjective, right? But I, I think we can all agree if we look at the extremes. Like if you look at a sommelier, uh, as someone who is really, really into the smell of and, you know, taste and smell experience of different wines. And, you know, they can do what seem like superpowers to me, tasting a wine and saying, oh, it's from this region of France from this year. And I don't know how far they can go, but yes. And Eduardo picked the grapes on a Thursday. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I have always found to be sort of a mystical superpower to me, but um, it's not a superpower. It's practice, right? So, um, just your, your brain systems, all of your brain functions kind of work like muscles in the sense that if you practice at it, you will get better. Um, if you suck at math when you start math, but then you practice it and you get better. And I think our sensory systems are kind of the same thing, right? Um, so, and I, I'm not as familiar with the world of sommeliers. I have spoken to a few, um, but it's practice and associating specific sensations, thinking really deeply about them, whereas most of us just kind of like, oh, that's a weird smell and move on. They say, this is a smell that I recognize in this way, and I'm going to associate it with, you know, these words, um, which helps them sort of define this, as we talked about before, kind of globular feeling of both taste and smell, because they're kind of they're mushy, whereas other sensory systems are more laid out. You know, you see the color blue, you see 470 nanometer wavelength of light, and that is blue. Um, whereas smells are a little bit more mushy, right? Like it's it's got a little bit of this hint, and I'm getting this kind of feeling. Um, so just practicing and honing our ability to categorize and recognize um, is probably the way to get your uh, smell and taste systems better. It's essentially go smell and taste a bunch of stuff and you will get better at smelling and tasting. Right. So well, and, there, there are, even when people have lost their sense of smell, there are, um, ENTs, um, ear, nose and throat doctors will sometimes prescribe, uh, essentially smell training sessions, um, which can help recover that ability to recognize and identify smells. So, well, and I'm going to, I'm going to take a moment just to insert a, uh, a plug, um, because we've talked about this of how to improve your tasting before on, on this podcast. So I'm going to refer people back to, uh, and I'll put this in the show notes, but, um, the episode with, uh, my, my good friend and, and master, uh, beer judge, Randy Scorby, but also the episode I did with Rich Higgins, who also wrote a book on, on not only how to taste better, but to understand where that taste comes from. What, what happens with that mouthfeel? How, how is that created in the brewery? Um, um, uh, and, and how to you kind of answer the so what of like, you're, you're looking at this beer, you taste this beer, but to kind of play the detective and figure out, okay, this is why the beer tastes feels, looks, sounds, you know, like this. Um, 
in the last little uh, oh, very uh, cool in the last little plug yeah that's that's also really cool if if you're if you are interested in um, learning more about um, how the tastes come about he has a little uh, a, a, a book um, where because he is a master cicerone and he's a certified sommelier. Um, and so he took that wine group. Oh, wow. So he's really good at tasting oh, and smelling. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, frankly, he's a bit ridiculous, and I don't mind saying so, um, <laughs> because he basically took that wine grid where these people are working their way down and applied it to the beer world. And, and it was just um, uh, insanely informative. So I'm going to put a link there. Uh, the last little plug I want to put in is uh, I've put out some um, videos uh, with my uh with my partner Brewery DB uh, talking about um, understanding your SRM, your IBUs, uh, your gravity, like all that stuff, and it's not necessarily per um, uh, for taste and smell necessarily, but understanding when you look at the color of your beer using your sense of sight and and you know gravity in your mouthfeel and and stuff like that. That understanding what that does to your beer, how to interpret it, and what you make of it. Um, using your senses to figure the stuff out. So I'll put all that in the show notes. That sounds very cool. As a, um, I do not make my own beer, but I do. I have hopped on the sourdough bread train, and I think a lot of uh-huh. the things are kind of similar, where you, you know, associate your or or you assess where your starter is and if it's ready to make bread, or you know, how does the flavor of your bread change depending on how long you proof it or in what conditions you proof it, or yeah, it's. All super, super interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, we're talking about beer. We could talk about wine. We could talk about bread. We could oh, talk yeah, about absolutely. cheese. We could talk about music. All this, it's just understanding how your senses work and how to leverage them mm-hmm. to improve your life. That That is the... Uh, that is the bow that I want to wrap around this, this little uh, podcast that we've been talking about today. Um, yeah. So... Um, but but given that, uh, Dr. Wilson, uh, what do mm-hmm. you what do you wish more people knew about the way we taste and smell? Oh, that is an excellent question. I think as we've been talking about, I think um, the things I want to communicate about taste and smell is uh, how incredibly important to our basic life experiences they are, um, and how we should think about them more often rather than just, you know, cursorily saying, oh, this smells like that. I'm moving on, you know, get into that smell, get into that um, taste, really think about what you are experiencing when you're tasting food. And I think that um, will give us all a greater appreciation of what these sensory systems are doing in our lives. Yeah. Perfect. Um, So the, uh, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to start winding down into these uh, uh, final questions, but um, the, uh, hopefully you find them equally as uh, entertaining. Um, uh, it, so uh, I'm sorry, the the uh, the cheese world and the wine world and all those other worlds were taken, but you got but uh, you get to be queen of the beer sensory world for one day. What would you change? Ooh. Or what's the first thing you would change? World. That's a a good question. Oh, I don't know. I think I'd I'd make more saisons in the world. I'm really into saisons right oh. now. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough question. I think I'm actually pretty satisfied with the beer world in terms of my sensory experiences. Um, yeah, maybe just some. I, I would like to be educated more on how all the things like differently shaped glasses might exper- like change my experience of taste and smell. I think maybe I'd, I I would go with the I would like to be more educated on how beer specifically can affect my senses. Does that sound good? Oh, that, that's wonderful. <laughs> so I uh, on that note, I I'm 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 going to double down on my promise to send you information on Dr. Charles Spence. Um, oh yes, please. But, I love more but, information. But this is a, a quick call to action. Anyone listening? On that note, um, I have been uh, trying to get a hold of a, um, I don't know, glass ma- manufacturer or a purveyor, or whatever, to really dive into the world of glassware and why that actually matters. So, if anyone's listening to this, yeah. um, you can reach out to me on the on the website. Um, because now, now there's at least two of us that want to know this information of how glassware <laughs> changes your experience with beer. Um, but other- and maybe I'll get some, you know, I have some people that I 
know a lot of uh, scientists that work on, you know, sniffing in mice and how that affects their sense of smell. That it turns out your sense of smell kind of changes based on what cycle of the of a sniff you're in. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Much like it's kind of different whether you smell something through the front of the nose or through the back of the nose when you're eating, which we call retronasal olfaction. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe doing I, I bet I could convince some people to figure out a study where we look at how the smell of something actually hits your nose based on what kind of blasts and the airflow in there. I'm going to need to find some physicists. It'll be good. I'm oh, yeah, because I want to talk about the difference between the short sniffs, the long sniffs, the drive-bys, the, uh, you know, yeah. all, all the stuff. I mean, there's the, I mean, just tasting and smelling your beer isn't just like sniff and gulp. Right. It, it, you can go well, into and, and uh, extra label, some... levels of geekery. Right. There's, there's been some, um, I go to, uh, people always think this is kind of funny that there's a whole conference about this, but there's a whole conference of taste and smell scientists that get together every year. Um, and one of the papers I will, I'm going to be terrible and forget who did it, but was demonstrating that the systems your brain uses to process information from your smell system based on if you smelled it from just a sniff or you smelled it retronasally or while you were chewing something up and it came up through the back of your nose um, and how those are processed differently. So there's a whole, there's a whole lot there that we don't quite understand yet. Oh my gosh. Uh, There is another podcast in the works as we speak. Um, Yeah. So, so (laughs) I, I will, I will ask you quid, Quid pro quo, Clarice. Uh, I'll send you that information, Dr. Mm. Charles Spence, and you should share information from that, uh, from, from that group. Um, but back to these uh, yeah, final questions. If uh, if you could choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart this earth, what would they be? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> very last meal. I I don't know why. Maybe I'm craving. Uh, no, actually. Um, I really love Indian food, <laughs> so I think I'd probably have to go with a, a really good spread of Indian food, some, you know, chana masala and some um, paneer sag, uh, sag paneer, paneer aloo. Yeah, some. I, I think I'd go with some good Indian food, some good naan, and then probably... Probably a Saison of some sort. I, there's um, a Saison out of a local beer company, Denver Beer Company, um, whose name I really, really love. It's called Japan Soft. And huh. so it's actually a, a Japanese-themed Saison, and it's really, really delicious, and I love it. So oh, wow. I think I'll go with that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to try and find some of that. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. Denver beer company is very excellent. I'm, I'm a lucky person beer wise in Colorado. So yes, you are. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, last big question anyway, with all of your experience, all of your, uh, uh, knowledge and everything else, why does good beer matter? Mm, I think it, it kind of going in with the, the idea that we've been talking about where these, you know, smell and taste like beer, um, are really associated with our quality of life. Beer is something we gather around. We make relationships around it. We, you know, get an innate sense of joy, which I think is kind of morally important um, in a philosophical level uh, from beer. And so I think, you know, it is a tool for us to greater enjoy our own lives and also brings us together in communities that are centered around something important and vital to our well-being. So, yeah, I think that's why good beer matters. Great. And a great answer to the question. Um, <laughs> if, it, if anyone's listening that wants to, I know, connect with you or learn more about your work or, or anything, do you have any ways for them to uh, connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, while I have not been a good tweeter, I do have a Twitter handle. It's at Wilson. Um, Courtney Wilson turns out is a really common name, so I had to go with Court the Wilson. Uh, the Wilson, okay. But I sometimes tweet science things there. Um, I also I have an email if you'd like to email me, uh, Courtney C O U R T N E Y dot Wilson W I L S O N at 
uh, CU Anschutz, which is complicated to spell. Um, C U A N S C H U T Z dot E D U. Sorry, I had to write that out because I cannot spell things without writing it out myself. And, and um, so, what, what's the full email again? Don't don't spell, but what is it? Right, right, right. So, Courtney dot Wilson at cuanshoots dot edu. Um, and so, any yeah, any of those ways sounds good. I'm I'd love to talk about taste and smell and beer and whatever. So. Great. And uh, last question: Do you have a, a final call to action for anyone listening, or any final words of wisdom? Um, final words of wisdom. Uh, I think just because you probably don't have many basic research scientists on here, and um, I want to just note the importance of basic research and what we are, you know, the questions we're answering aren't always directly saving people or not saving people, but, you know, figuring out what's going on in the world helped us so much in understanding what kind of world we live in and how best to act in it. So um, I just support basic science is what I want to get across there and um, be interested in it. You know, uh, there, I think basic science is getting a lot better at being out in the world and communicating we're not all old white guys in a lab in a lab coat that can't talk to people. We actually all talk to people quite a bit. Um, and so talk to scientists, go find some, if you have a question, go, you know, look up on a university website, see if anyone studies that and ask them. Cause we would love to talk about our science. It's important. Um, and we want to engage the public in it. So, yeah. And might I say, especially over a beer. Yeah. Especially over a beer. We'd love to. <laughs> Particular saison. Dr. Yeah, Wilson, thank, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. I, I, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I'm very satisfied with this conversation. Um, and I, maybe we will have a second one someday and dive even further into this. But uh, for now, thank you for your time and, and your knowledge. That sounds great. I would love to. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Our senses are gifts to help us better explore and enjoy the world around us. I hope that none of you experienced the loss of one or more of your senses. Instead, I hope the conversation in this podcast helps you all appreciate the profound impact our senses have on our lives. In the next episode, I speak with a company that can turn us all into professional tasters. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.